Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 22, The Curriculum for Wales Journey, with Gareth Evans. Hello and welcome back to the podcast for our final episode of Season 4. can't believe we've been putting up with each other this long, Emma. I know, what a slog. It's okay, we're still here. (laughs) We We continue on. (laughs) And for our final episode, we have a very interesting interview lined up because joining us on the line from our friends down the road, down west in Rathrova, who are another IT provider based uh, over towards West Wales, is Gareth Evans, who is their Director of Education Policy. Hello, Gareth. Good morning, both. Good morning. It's really nice to have you on. Um, first of all, because we're, we're a little bit jealous, we don't have a Director of Education Policy. Um, could you, <laughs> could you I, wouldn't ex- get, I wouldn't get too excited, Tom. <laughs> could you explain to us uh, what a Director of Education Policy does um, and also a little bit about your, your career that's led to this role? Because I know that you've come to us from the world of mm. journalism. Is that right? Yeah, well, I, I suppose it's probably better off that I start going back before I go forwards. And I, I was, uh, as some people might uh, remember, the education editor of the Western Mail for the best part of 10 years, You know, during which I worked with a lot of different uh, interesting people from across the education system, ministers, uh, officials, schools, of course, teachers, learners. Um, and having left uh, the paper some time ago now, I thought it would be good to put what I'd learned into practice, I suppose, and go into the education system proper. So that's when I joined uh, UWTSD. And now I, I really, I mean, I continue doing a lot of what I used to do, uh, analysing, critiquing, reviewing policy, um, whilst supporting uh, teachers and schools in slightly different ways. Um, so, yeah, a very mixed uh, job, I would, uh, I would say, and um, an enjoyable one, and nonetheless, lots, lots going on. Yeah, there is plenty going on, and that's partly why we've invited you on today. Because for our final episode, there seems to be nothing more appropriate to do than to kind of take a moment and say, well, the next time we're on uh, or in people's ears, curriculum for Wales will be a thing in schools. Officially, mm. it will have come in, or certainly in some schools. And uh, you have a blog. WelshEducationMatters.wordpress.com for anyone that wants to go have and have a list, uh, have a read. And um, you have done kind of what we're doing here, which is to round up where we are now and and where we're potentially going. And so mm. we thought it would be a good idea to get you on and, and discuss, you know, the position that we find ourselves in. Um, so just to kind of kick off, really. Where do you see us standing now as we kind of teeter on the brink of of implementing this Mm. thing? Um, How do you feel as we hopefully go off for a bit of a summer break, uh, ready for this big moment? Yeah, and and it's a a funny one, isn't it? Because having built up to this now for, what, six, seven years, it it kind of feels like a big point in our reform journey. But I'm, I'm not entirely convinced it is. I, you know, I see curriculum reform as being very much a sort of long-term policy, something that politicians, uh, the wider education system and, and uh, the public more generally, I suppose, has to sort of get behind and, and, and give time to develop and, and bed in. So, so actually, whilst uh, the curriculum, as you rightly say, sort of launches for its first rollout in September, I don't really see that as being the beginning uh, and certainly not the end of this this process. Um, it, it's it's been a, a long journey, as I say. There's there's been a lot 
of work put into it. Um, but it's important, I think, to remember that, that the job isn't nearly done yet. Um, the, the curriculum documents exist. Uh, there are all sorts of support materials out there, but we have a real job of work to do now uh, in upskilling and supporting our profession to implement uh, the thing. You know, there's, there's a, I think, I think we've spent a lot of time focusing on the curriculum framework itself, statements of what matters, the purposes, uh, the descriptions of learning and what have you. I think we now need to shift our focus a little to to supporting the profession to make that a reality. And you use um, an interesting analogy to highlight some of the challenges that teachers in particular as curriculum designers face, um, that of musical composition, which I enjoyed. And you make the point that if we remove the score, um, you need to know that teachers can play all the right notes, uh, ergo the curriculum content in the right order. So things, you know, touching on sequencing, coherence, things that we touched upon in a previous episode with Lucy Crehan and some of her her concerns sort of chime with yours, that the lack of detail um, about how do we actually do this in practice. Um, So tell us a bit about your perspective on that. Yeah, and, and, and you're right, Emma. I mean, it's not, let's make clear at this stage that this is not some sort of, you know, attack on, on the capacity or capability of the profession. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite the opposite, actually. We, we fully respect and understand the professionalism of our teachers, uh, number one. What I am suggesting is that they now need to develop new skills, skills that they might not have been taught otherwise, and they might not have gained through uh, teacher education, you know, a, a sphere that we know well. So, so I'm proposing, and I think a lot of others actually would share in this proposal, uh, that teachers need more support and they need s- support to develop new skills, skills, skills of curriculum design of uh, assessment frameworks, understanding learner progression. There's a lot of new things out there now that the, the, the profession, uh, we as educators are having to get our heads around. And I, th- I think actually what has happened is because the new curriculum has come in, it's very different to the old curriculum. The new ways of working are very different to the old ways of working. Our profession has kind of been de-skilled without, um, without really knowing it. Almost overnight as the curriculum documentation was drawn and, and presented to the system, our profession of I've kind of been a bit daunted, I think, by looking at all this this new stuff and thinking, well, where am I? What are the implications for me? So what what we need to do now as a as a as a system, as and certainly policymakers need to think about how they support those teachers to journey from the old world into the new. And I talk about it in in some of my my writing about that sort of metaphorical bridge from the old world to the new world, the old world full of um, a sort of nationally prescribed stuff to the more locally designed uh, prescribed stuff from fixed to flexible, you know, call it what you will, prescription to autonomy. We're having to support our profession across that bridge from the old world into the new. And it's important, isn't it, that we do that gradually and over time, because I'm, I'm very conscious now, the more I speak to teachers, if we railroad all of this stuff through and we just throw stuff at them endless, endlessly, there will come a point, I think, where they only um, sort of develop superficial understanding of the new bits and new elements of the, uh, the curriculum, new elements of their pedagogy and practice. And we need them to, to sort of really embed and develop this stuff over time. But to do that, and, and sort of a, a really uh, long-winded answer to your very straightforward question, we need to scaffold that learning. We need to su- support them and guide them through. And this is where the kind of, the, the sort of 
slightly jarring thing about this, isn't it? The fact that you you outlined quite rightly all those things that need to happen. You've also mentioned that we've been kind of doing this for about seven years. Um, one of your recent blog posts has in the title, you know, teachers have every right to be annoyed. And I, I, I suppose I should put my hand up and say I failed to find a polite way to ask the minister this. And I suppose he would probably just say, well, I've only been the minister for a year, Gov, so it's kind of kind of wasn't my thing. But we have had seven years to do some of this stuff. And those of us who've been floating around the periphery of it, I think, have picked up the fact that information has really not flowed around the system in the way that perhaps it should have done um, a lot earlier on. I mean, what's your perspective on how it is that we found ourselves, um, you know, characteristically, I suppose, in education, having a last minute, uh, you know, essay crisis about this thing? Well, I think there's a, a few elements uh, to this, Tom. The first I, I would uh, suggest is, is kind of a, a policy design flaw, I think. Uh, if you look back over the uh, National Mission Education document, the, the Welsh Government Strategy for Education, uh, released some time ago now in 2017, although, of course, updated since, there was very little mention of a sort of implementation phase, what I would consider to be the sort of real nitty gritty of this policy reform. Right? We've drawn the curriculum, we've, we've, we've got together in pioneers, we've, we've, we've written the thing, um, but how are we going to roll it out? How are we going to ensure that every teacher understands it first and foremost and then has the skills and, and capacity to deliver it? Um, I think that from the very early stages, actually, from almost from inception, we, we, we missed a trick there. And, and it's funny, I only look back over Successful Futures, Graham Donaldson's report some, uh, a couple of days ago, and I, I flicked through, I took the, the liberty of flicking through or, or searching uh, the, the, cheat, the cheat way uh, for uh, references to professional learning. And of a 120-page document, there were only six references to professional learning. Now, I, I, you know, I, granted, I accept that the document uh, was, um, was, was fundamentally about designing a curriculum and assessment arrangements. It was not about uh, considering implications for the profession, but that, that document only considered six references to professional learning, and there was no solid in, implementation phase, I think, uh, embedded within uh, the national uh, education mission document, I think is an, is an oversight. So from, from day one, I think we were on the back foot uh, with this. The other thing I would say, and, and, and this is where things get a little murky, and I don't really have the answer to this, is that the minister and his predecessor, Kirsty Williams, has for a long time spoken of the huge amounts of money that they, they are investing in professional learning. And I think that is probably true. Um, and the minister only recently re referenced, I think, something like 28, 30 million uh, being injected into the system in the next academic year. That's a lot of, you know, in the current climate, and not an insignificant amount of money. So one has to ask, where is that money gone? How is it being spent? And how is it so few in our system, I think, are ready for the curriculum when you know when they should have been uh, judging by the, the the timelines drawn by government some time ago so i think there are there are issues around the policy itself i think there are issues around the spend of uh, public money but what is i think heartening is that the minister himself now jeremy miles has noticed and noted very publicly only in a in a conference speech a month or two ago that our professional learning is is not up to scratch it is not as accessible uh, i think coherent or consistent i forget the exact wording of, of his statement but he was very clear that there are issues with professional learning and it is not uh, it is not accessible to all and there is too much variation across the piece now he has acknowledged that i think that is a real 
uh, encouraging thing because he has noted um, to, to the rest of us really something I think that most of us would have known already that, that professional learning needs sorting and needs sorting fast. And you've proposed um, some ideas about how that might that time uh, and that approach might be best spent obviously we've got our national entitlement now that we've got some detail on um on hub um but you've made some really precise recommendations and and sort of position a position piece really about how we would best serve teachers um, in order to make the most out of that professional learning and it's not too dissimilar to what we as teachers try to do to scaffold as you said earlier on um, learning as we go through so something I I found um, quite interesting uh, and a point that you made that I, I found myself sort of Air, punching the air too was it's time or detail you you can't do uh, neither so you, mm. you, it's mm. it, it's got to be um, one or the other and and I think something that you said in that second blog that I agreed with was this lack of detail um, and therefore we either need to give teachers the time to as you mm. say sort of process what is a very verbose uh, curriculum framework that has got some knotty bits that need some digest time and and some time to think about what that looks like in practice if you don't give them that time then you need to give them some more detail about what Mm. we all must definitely do as teachers so your thoughts on that yeah and and I I think really Emma this this comes back to um, the the sort of the want for this sort of panacea this wonderful uh, situation whereby everybody every teacher has you know weeks and weeks away from the class loads of non-contact time to really sort of delve deeply into their into their practice to reflect on their practice to read the documentation to read the w- wider research base um, but then you sort of balance that don't you with a sort of pragmatic the the, the real time uh, situation which is one of uh, huge disruption and uncertainty post-covid covid i say post-covid covid is still of course very much a, a part of our environment now um, but how in having how we can balance those two how, how we can sort of get to this ideal situation where teachers do get the time yet acknowledging that that things are very very tight at the moment budgets are tight covid is is around and there are lots of other different pressures on the school and and now when i talk about detail and and you mentioned detail a number of times there people get a a little bit nervous i think and and start to um, kick back against uh, some of the things i and and perhaps others say because they think that we you know we're we're rowing back to the old world we're we're pining after prescription and we're just going to default back to the old you know the, the 1980s curriculum that we've been we've all been working towards it's not that at all it's just being pragmatic and supporting teachers who otherwise will get swamped and are getting swamped by hundreds of hundreds of pages of curriculum documentation that let's be honest they're not going to have time to pour through in 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 any great detail they need to know what to look at uh, why they need to look at it and how it's going to help them um, practically in the classroom that's what they need they need signposts they need scaffold they need a framework and if we can add a little bit more meat to the bones and they think that's going to be beneficial for them then we've got to we've got to do it we cannot just sit in this this sort of halfway house where we're afraid to give them stuff for fear of over prescribing um, or um, or giving them too much and reverting back to the old curriculum as, as I said in my blog and you've made reference to it's either it's either time 
which I fear we won't be able to afford them given what I've said about COVID and financial uh, implications or detail. So I think, and look, just to be, again, absolutely clear, when we talk about detail, we don't mean government prescribing stuff from their, their, their office in T-Hole. We don't mean senior civil servants getting together and working out what curriculum design means. We mean co-construction. You know, in the true spirit of this curriculum, teachers, uh, leaders, uh, people like ourselves, perhaps, others in the education field need to get together. I don't think it would take a great deal of time. I don't think it would take a great deal of money to get a, a bunch of like-minded and willing people in a room to thrash out some of these thornier issues. At the moment, we're just kind of drifting. We're drifting and nothing's happening, which to me is a bit of a, a bit of a concern. When you've outlined some quite interesting things that have been going on um, in relation to this this kind of sticking your hand up and admitting that, that things need to happen. I mean, you, you've made reference to the fact that it's for a very long time been the, the default position of people high up that everything's fine uh, when it's not. We reported a few episodes ago about the COVID assessment project, which was not to put too fine a point on it, sat on for a very long time before being published. So, you know, you've reported uh, or, or we've all seen in, on Twitter about some interesting issues regarding a, a report about leadership and some very strange mm. shenanigans on Twitter with a deleted tweet by a, mm. by a joint consortia account. I mean, do these old habits die hard? I know Jeremy uh, Miles has sort of said that we need we need to sort things out, but there's been an awful lot of strange things going on. We've had people getting howled down for daring to put detail on things. We've mm. had local authorities walking away from one of the regional consortia. I mean, are we are we heading in the right direction here, or have we got some kind of deep rooted problems still? Yeah, and and. By goodness, Tom, you've raised a, a, a whole manner of different issues there, and I could bore you to death, I think, with a, with an answer, and I'll try my best not to. Um, there's there's a few things I'd probably uh, mention briefly. I mean, the, the, the latter point you made with regard to the uh, the sort of mid, what is known as a middle tier support, uh, su- support level of support um, involving predominantly people like uh, ourselves in universities, but also uh, more significantly, I would suggest to, to schools, the regional consortia. Um, you touched upon it there. Some local authorities are now working independently, which I think is a real shame. There are rumoured, um, if rumours are to be believed, to be more um, thinking about jumping ship and, and breaking from the regional model. So there is, a, there is an issue quite obviously a a, a serious issue there and and what is actually I think uh, mildly amusing is that whenever I'm in a in a webinar or a conference or in conversation with a colleague or an academic or a a teacher from Scotland they always point to our regional model as being this kind of um, great thing that they aspire to and I say well I'm not really sure that is the case anymore Um, so there are there are issues there and, and of course fundamentally schools feel that the hardest lots of confusion lots of mis- miscommunication um, uh, lots of competition I mean that was the biggest problem with the regions I think that they were set up uh, independently rather than sort of under a national banner and they did their own thing uh, and again I understand that there is a need to to, to, to operate more um, more closely to your local communities and to your schools but there needs to be some sort of uh, national approach to the way we do things and I don't think we've ever uh, we've ever we've ever got to that point but coming back to you so I think which is you know a sort of more general broader point about about lack of 
of challenge really in, in, in education. And I think it's probably true of many other sectors uh, in Wales. And it's certainly something that I felt in, you know, my, my 12, 15 years of working in Welsh education is that there is a, a lack of appetite for challenge. And, and, you know, in my experience, the challenge is always or, or, or very often and, and most of the time constructive. You know, we, we don't say stuff to be difficult. We don't poke and prod to be a nuisance. We do it because we think we can help and we can help uh, change things for the better. And I, actually, I look back, you know, I was only reflecting on this with a colleague fairly recently. I look back now at, at when we uh, or when Professor Donaldson set up his four purposes and, 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 and structured the curriculum around uh, areas of learning and experience. And I was thinking about again about those purposes, none of which I think any um, right minded uh, educator would disagree with. But I was thinking that, you know, in, in presenting those poor, uh, those four purposes, which are now almost shorthand for our curriculum for Wales. You know, the, the, the want for learners to be ambitious, to be creative, to be uh, to be enterprising. Um, it, it's it's almost as if now, if, if you were to to speak out against the curriculum, you're speaking out against the purposes. You're speaking out against the AOLEs. You know, by by introducing the purposes and getting people to coalesce around the purposes, I think it, it sort of quietly legitimised the reform in a certain way. If you see what see what I mean, and 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 I think because of that. Um, there has been a, 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 a reluctance uh, to challenge. And of course, you throw in, you know, the, the sort of discourse of, uh, of collaboration, of co-construction, this, this feeling in Wales now that, that we're all in this together. The space, I think, for people to challenge has, is very much narrowed. And, and for one to stand up and challenge now is a lot more difficult. So I think there are wider, uh, wider issues, narratives, discourses at play here that have perhaps not help the situation so so when somebody does put their head above the parapet they do tend to get chopped down which again i think is really sad and, and, and a big shame because there are some really interesting voices out there offering some really good i think ideas and if we were more inclined to listen to them i think our curriculum would be in, in much better shape I mean, you make that point that no reasonable person would disagree with the uh, four purposes. I mean, one of the—I don't know whether I've got out of the wrong side of bed today asking these questions like this. But one of the one of the things I—it's <laughs> the effect I have on people. I think. <laughs> well, one of the criticisms I've tended to level from from this end is that is there a problem that that we seem to struggle to go beyond defining stuff that no reasonable person would disagree with? I mean, you know, the old phrase "motherhood and apple pie" springs mm. to mind. Is the is the reason that people don't want any further detail that it's really nice for us all to agree to agree on stuff but that's because the stuff that we're putting on the table is stuff that no reasonable person would disagree with and that eventually we have to decide to come off the fence and mm. and and define some stuff that not everybody is going to agree with yeah and 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 that's the point isn't it that um well that's that's the point of co-construction that, that that not everybody agrees with everything and, and you you discuss you challenge you you um, you you argue your case and you you have these you know we, we call it don't we in in, a, in our trade professional dialogue you have these professional conversations with people and you you iron out issues you work out the best way forward and you you agree between you the level of granularity you're going to go into so that i mean this, this is what and i know you're uh, one of your previous guests uh, lucy Crahan, has, has spoken about at length this idea that we discuss at a cluster level the uh, levels of content that we're all going to do the same, the, the things that we're all going to do the same, and by default then the things that we're allowed to do differently. And I would actually sort of dress it up as these parameters, the parameters around the curriculum. I don't see the curriculum documentation as being 
a parameter. It, it is it is a, a, a rough script. It is it is a, a, a sort of rough guide of, of, as to where we're going. But I think we now need to frame slightly more clearly that parameter around it. What are you allowed to do? What aren't you allowed to do? And uh, you know what sort of level are we going to get into by way of detail? By way of you know I I talk about it as, as core content. Are we going to get to a point where every school has to teach certain things at certain points in the year, or are we going to say no? And these are decisions that have to be taken by the system itself, not by government. If governments start taking these decisions, we devolve back to type. We, we end up going back to the curriculum of old. What, what was really missing, I think, for me, um, coming back to the, the point, is that when we finished with the curriculum documentation and it was published and it was released to the system, I think, when was it? January 2020, perhaps, you know, a good two and a half, nearly three years ago, I honestly, on reflection, and I was probably guilty of this as well, I think there was a bit of back, back slapping, a bit of self-congratulation, you know, well done guys, we've done it, when really we should have been quickly turning our attention to, right, what happens next? What level of detail do we need to go into next? What's the next phase of this development? When really, you know, and again, I'm not daft enough to, to suggest that COVID didn't have any impact on this at all. Of course it did. But there was an opportunity, I think, to shift that focus, shift that narrative onto phase two, where we look at detail, we look at content, we look at um, co-construction of professional learning and what happens next. And, and, and we didn't. And, and, you know, here we are two and a half years later with so many unanswered questions still. I'm sat here talking to you. We're having this conversation because there are gaps and teachers well know it. Absolutely. And something that we feel quite passionate about working with student teachers, I'm sure you feel the same, is that we push back against any um, sort of insinuation from people like Estin or EWC, any of those people that uh, watch over us very closely in what we do in ITE, um, suggesting that student teachers are going to be going into the profession as curriculum designers and, and knowing how to do that. And I feel quite strongly that we need to decide in ITE what's reasonable, what's sensible uh, as a contribution that a student teacher can make and what is feasible in a nine-month PGCE route into um, teaching uh, for us to actually cover and address with our student teachers to make them feel sort of equipped to make a contribution or to feel confident um, in the environment if they choose to stay in Wales um, uh, to contribute to that environment. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and, and I would agree totally with that, uh, Emma, but, but equally, and I think it's important to remember this point as well, um, I, I was at a uh, a conference recently with uh, with Graham Donaldson, at which he he reminded students of their leadership role in in curriculum change. And I think when he was talking about the leadership role, he didn't necessarily mean that that student teachers were going to come in as these ready-made curriculum designers and were going to take everything in their stride. I don't think he meant it in that way. I think he meant that student teachers, with the energy they have now from from their years uh, PGC, their, their, their undergraduate, they're going into the profession they're full of vibrancy they're full of life they're they're, they're wanting to pursue this uh, wonderful what is a wonderful career in education so i think we i think we absolutely need to use their energy um you know getting into staff room and, to, and talking into in, in uh, about the curriculum reform and other associated reforms with their colleagues i think is going to be really helpful uh, to building this momentum across the system but but when we, when we talk about leadership we, we mean having a role we mean to taking 
uh, taking this by the scruff of their neck and getting involved. And that, again, that doesn't necessarily mean every decision they take is going to be the decision and you know, on their head be it. It's not that. I would like to think of student teachers as being sat around the same table as the SLT and other middle and senior leaders in constructing the thing and, and, and how, you know, how they're going to shape, shape it and how they're going to put it into practice. I don't think they should be passive or in any way subservient to other uh, perhaps more experienced teachers I think they have to have a fundamental role and should have a fundamental role because they you know they've been living and breathing stuff you know, this stuff haven't they for the last year they've been they know Donaldson inside out far better I would suggest than, than many of their more experienced colleagues when they get into school so I think actually whilst I agree that they shouldn't um, you know be considered the leader or the curriculum designer, um, I wouldn't want schools to think that student teachers coming in are, are in some way inferior or junior or passive, um, but actually really important uh, cogs in their curriculum reform wheel. Looking at uh, secondary for a minute, because both of us over here are secondary specialists, there's some very particular kind of interesting issues around secondary, aren't there, that you've identified relating to the fact that we've got these qualifications that we work towards in secondary. Um, and as you've said, you know, key stage three, as, as it was, lends itself quite nicely to some of the stuff set out in the curriculum. But it's kind of unavoidable that everybody's got half an eye or probably more than half an eye, actually, on what happens at post 14 and post 16. And we, we kind of know at this point that every the, the qualifications people kind of said, oh, we don't want to be wagging the dog, you know, get on with it and sort your curriculum out and it'll all be fine. And, and secondary school said, um, no, thanks. <laughs> I want to know what, what these qualifications mm-hmm. are going to look like. How are we going to kind of get this transition right or, or or get this connection right between this very aspirational curriculum ideal and the very, very hard currency of post-14 and post-16 qualifications? It's, it's a great question, Tom, and it's a question that I don't think um, the system itself yet has an answer to. But, but what I would say is a kind of start of a 10, and I think it's important to go back at this point. I think context is really uh, key to this discussion. If you think back to, you know, a sort of decade ago, um, as curriculum reform was was perhaps being uh, considered or thought about for the first time, we hadn't set uh, Graham Donaldson on his way. We hadn't reviewed existing arrangements. If you think of the um, the policy landscape and the environment across the system, then you know it was a, it was as I've written uh, before in a in a fairly recent paper, it was a, you know a very sort of neoliberal environment of of competition of market marketization of data you know very data driven uh, a pref- profession that was browbeaten and and down on its haunches. There was a huge distrust, I would suggest, in government. Um, You know, categorization came back, national testing came back. There was uh, a very, very keen eye on uh, from Estin. And of course, PISA was was kind of the the, the moment that that everything changed our PISA results of a decade or so ago. So, So the context back then was very, very different to now. The feel across the system was very, very different to now. But of course, that was the environment in which the curriculum reform um, was born and, and grew out of. So I think it's important to think back to that point that this was a profession, broadly speaking, had a huge distrust 
um, in in government itself. So that that you know that is the same broadly speaking the same profession. Things have changed. Categorization is being um, is being ironed out slightly. Uh, national testing is being reviewed. That uh, there are certain you know Astin now is is talking, or has ditched the summative grading and is talking much more collaboratively about self evaluation. That the the mood music is changing, but the profession is still the profession. And so, so take take for a second that distrust, uh, that that constant barracking from ministers and others that they weren't good enough. You know, I remember a, a previous minister, Leighton Andrews, how many sticks in my mind, um, a system that was complacent, a compl complacent and underperforming system just a few years before we started on this journey. So that that's the context. So little wonder, you know, fast forward a decade or probably less than that to where we are today, that teachers, particularly in secondary, aren't ready to take that monumental leap of faith into this whole new Donaldson world that is free of, uh, well, a lot freer of accountability. Of course, there will still be accountability, but it will be manifested in different ways. There won't be so many uh, gradings or benchmarks or assessments of, of performance at a school level. And schools are thinking, do I really honestly believe this, particularly when, as you've rightly identified, qualifications are so uncertain. The qualifications landscape is is, is absolutely uh, up in the air. Nobody quite knows what is going to happen there. And, and of course, you look to our colleagues in Scotland, which went through this process a good number of years before us, and they always talk about washback. The washback from the um, from from uh, latter part of secondary into the early part of secondary and actually into the, the, the later part of primary education, the washback of the curriculum, of the purposes, of the AOLEs and the vision of what they want to do with this, you know, very, very sticky, hard and fast um, qualify or else GCSE and A level. I know they've got hires and, and nationals up in Scotland, but the same sort of thing. So at the moment, the two very much uh, are in uh, are, are in a sort of jarring position. They don't uh, work in unison, um, and I think I think the the problem really is our is our reluctance to break from the GCSE model. If there's one thing Qualifications Wales has decided, it's that we're going to re retain the GCSE brand, and I think that is a mistake. I think that's a shame, and I think there was a real opportunity to do something really really different under the banner of our new curriculum, a sort of, uh, I would advocate a sort of French style baccalaureate approach that, that recognised different parts of the curriculum and, and, and children's progression and learning more holistically. But as it is, we're still wedded to this tripartite of, of England, Northern Ireland and, and Wales. GCSEs, I, I assume because they, they are concerned about the cross-border flow of students and, and uh, not wanting to disadvantage Welsh students in, in Welsh H, uh, English HEs and, and uh, English jobs, or England-based jobs, I should say. But I think we, I really do think we need to relook at that and look past that. And if we're going to be bold enough to go out into this brave new world of curriculum, we should very well be considering doing it for qualifications as well. And you've talked about accountability there, and I suppose we're going to have to bring in um, Estin at this point, who you did you did kind of <laughs> mention uh, in passing in that answer. Um, I almost have a sneaking uh, sympathy for them in a way because they need to provide some sort of quality assurance, you know, challenge, support mm -hmm. kind of role mm -hmm. here. They need to do it in a way that 
fits with the spirit of the curriculum, which means, you know, no big sticks and all, all of that kind of thing. And we know that uh, they went into a little huddle for a year after Professor Donaldson made it clear they needed to rethink their relationship um, with schools. But as Lucy Crean said, and you'll remember having listened to it, she made a very compelling case for the fact that we might we might widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots uh, in in schools. You know, there's a real threat to equity if we don't have some kind of quality assurance, support, sharing of what works and what doesn't. How are we going to square that circle uh, to try and get some sort of rigour in the support and challenge that comes from the likes of Estin without killing off the aspirational spirit that this whole thing is couched in? Another uh, great question, Sorry. Tom. And I, I, no, no, I, you know, and, and they're great questions because we don't yet have you know really clear answers to them. I mean, the first thing I would say um, on Estin now that we're talking about it, them, um, is that I, I would like to see, and I think the profession would like to see, coming back to that sort of climate of mistrust and, and uh, slight reticence and, criti- and cynicism, I suppose, about some of the things that, that happen at a sort of middle tier and government sort of level. I would I would think, and I and I know that teachers share in teachers I speak to would share in this. Um, I would like to see Estin tell us a little bit more about how they are preparing for the curriculum and how their uh, their HMI, their their inspectors, uh, are upskilling themselves in order to be able to inspect on the curriculum. I mean, it's all very well, isn't it, them going in. Um, uh, career inspectors or inspectors who, who have a, a certain amount of experience going into school now under the new the banner of the new world, the new curriculum and inspecting. But how has their practice had to change in, in line with the school's practice? You know, and, and how have they done that? I'm not completely clear on that. And I think it would be helpful for them to, to share with us and share with teachers, first and foremost, how they are upskilling in line with the demands of Donaldson. So that's the, the kind of first point uh, I would make. The second point you know, you're absolutely right. There has to be a co- accountability for, for public services, for public money. And par- fundamentally, parents need to know that their children are getting a, a solid grounding, a solid education. And, and you know, they're, they're not being shortchanged by their local school. That's that's a, a sort of human uh, want by every teacher, uh, every parent, I would have thought of, of their local school. But again, how to do that now under the banner of the new curriculum and this this more stand back, uh, stand back approach will be very difficult, least not because at the moment, and as we've we've discussed at length during this conversation, the lack of detail, the lack of prescription, the lack of a framework or let's call it a parameter around it. So until we have that level of uh, detail, that, that parameter around inspection, Inspections will be, I assume, inspecting in very different ways and looking at lots of different variations on the same theme. So that there's got to be a, at some point, some coming together of, of te- again, the same sorts of people, co-construction, teachers, leaders, middle tier, Estin and government to discuss and, 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 and thrash out what is a a fair um, a fair definition of good or, or, or excellent. I know we're moving away from summative grading and what is a school that is you know um so-called underachieving or underperforming there has to be that that conversation that happens next and, and on your wider point about equity you know and I, i've sat in uh, uh, who knows how many webinars over the past two or three years i'm sure you two have as well um 
and, and, and I still haven't heard for all the talk about, um, you know, ministers have spoken, policymakers have spoken about the new curriculum narrowing the, the attainment gap. I have seen little or no evidence to support that view. And, I, and I'm sure there would be others uh, who share in that. And, and people talk about, um, you know, the, the networks uh, providing some sort of coherence and some sort of moderation and, and schools coming together and, and working out um, what is fair and what is reasonable, but there has to be more than that. We we can't leave we can't leave narrowing the gap uh, to chance. And and again, not wishing to to go over all ground and, and to bore you, but there are two I think two possible ways out of the equity malaise. The one would be that idea of a core content, a core curriculum, certain things that every school has to do. And again, that would be decided by the schools themselves in co-construction. Um, or alternatively, a common core professional learning offer, which for all the talk regionally and for all the talk nationally, I do not think currently exists. And I know that is a, a view shared by a good number of teachers that I work and speak to, uh, with, with and, and speak to. So I, there are two gaps there, core content, core professional learning. And at the moment we're doing neither. And that's why questions around equity, I think will continue to abound, um, uh, well, for the duration, I think, for the next couple of years. And yet we are where we are. Gaps exist. September is coming um, and we've got uh, a new sort of tranche of of newly qualified teachers and early career teachers going into the profession starting in September who are probably asking themselves, well, what what should I prioritise? What do I need to do straight away to get some footing here and to be able to navigate <laughs> this this new world that is is now in front of me so what what would you advise and have you what have you advised to your 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 graduates this year about about where to go in September and what to do straight away yeah well there are there are a couple of things that you know and who's to say my advice is good advice but there are a couple of things that I would I would suggest the first would be, I mean, it's a fairly obvious one, isn't it? The first would be to to, to really trawl through, uh, you know, all available curriculum document, uh, documentation, remind, you know, re- remind yourself of the key terminology associated um, with curriculum for Wales. I think it's really important that student teachers and, and uh, NQTs and, and, and new entrants to the profession are really in tune with the language of the new curriculum. You know, you don't want to be getting to school and, and people talking about um, statements of what matters and descriptions of learning and progression steps and what have you. And, and you, you're feeling a little bit isolated from, from day dot because you, you, you don't really know what they're talking about. So I think it's really important that you develop a common language. You get to know the language of the curriculum and you get to talk in the same sort of terms as as your colleagues will, an ally to that, and I think probably more important than that, is getting to know your school, getting to know where they are, where they're going, what the vision is, you know, tag tag onto a few coattails and see what see what people are doing in in, in their class in their, their classrooms with their own learners. Get a feel for the the, the local community because look, let, let's let's not forget that the, the one of the real big cells of this curriculum, and I happen to, to to certainly believe in it myself, is this idea of supporting our, our, our local learners, our, our individual learners, and our local communities, making this a more uh, a, a more meaningful curriculum that speaks to the people it serves. So get to know your school, get to know where it's at, get to know where it's going. But but just a final point on on that, Emma, if I, if I may, you know, a reminder 
that the curriculum, I think it's a point I made right at the beginning, the curriculum is going to be a slow burn. You know, when you start in September, don't panic when you get into school and you think, blimey, they, they haven't got this in place or they haven't done this yet or that's that's still being worked through. You know, this is going to be a long, a long game. And, and let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's going to be a lot of really good practice that will remain. You know, the, the, the really, quote, good schools will probably end up doing a lot of the same things they're doing now, but, but repackaging and, and, and slightly re, reorganizing things in a different way. So, so the really good practice will remain good practice. Good teachers will remain good teachers. It's just that we're having to think about things a little differently. The environment and context around us is changing, um, but but don't panic. You know this this is a, this is a long a long term thing. And when you get into school, go in with that energy, go in with that drive. And look what I'm sure you say the same to your students. What better time to start in the profession than now? You know, and there are hardened teachers I speak to who have been in the game for. 30, 40 years who say that, look, I've been through all manner of different policy changes, all manner of different curriculum change. And this is the one. This is our chance. So, you know, go in, grab it with both hands uh, and, and really run with it. And, you know, I'm sure all of us would, would in a few years time love to see where they, they take things. One final question then from me before Emma asks you if you've done your homework for the short slots at the end. Um, and this might be another one of my uh, my infamous ones. So feel free to just, just tell me where to go when I ask this one. Your blog has set out really clearly where we are, where we are now, what's led up to this point. Um, and you've also made a number of recommendations for what would be the best way to make the best of where we are now. But looking at the bigger picture and maybe drawing on the fact that you've you've been around the block of the education system for a while now in in various roles for better or worse this was kicked off by a PISA panic as some people call it um you know mm-hmm. we were free falling away in the PISA results and and the the government were not happy about it we've put this thing in place it is a slow burn as you say but i can't escape the fact that you've pointed out that scotland's performance in PISA did not go in the right direction um, after mm-hmm. Curriculum for Excellence came in. Lucy Crean mentioned that New Zealand lost its place in her book as a high-performing education system shortly after introducing a curriculum like this. I kick myself daily for not asking the minister this the other day when we interviewed him. Uh, my excuse is that we ran out of time. So I'm going to ask you a variant of the question. What's going to happen if we head in a downwards direction on PISA, I know we weren't in a great place to start with, so I'm not quite sure how much lower we can go. But if we do go into free fall, what are we going to do? How long are the government going to hold course without panicking? How long is the public going to hold course without panicking? What do you think is going to happen on that front? Yeah, I, th- I think... Uh, actually, Tom, there's a fairly straightforward answer to this, and it and it stems from something we discussed earlier around around lack of challenge, lack of scrutiny, actually, of some uh, government policy. My feeling is that if PISA does decline, and, and I think it's worth reminding people, isn't it, that PISA will be sat by pupils in Wales later this year. Um, our next tranche of results will come out December of next year, 23. So it won't be long before we find out where we are. My feeling is um, that the uh, media and political pressure will not be nearly 
great enough or certainly not as strong as you might see in the likes of England to derail the policy. I just don't think uh, there will be that sort of cacophony of noise. I, I can't imagine uh, things being rocked. We are investing now in the long term in curriculum reform. Everything is changing. So it's not like they can change anything else anyway. Um, I think I think we'll end up sticking with it. So, so come next December, a year hence, I think we will be fine regardless of results, I think we will continue. And and actually, I think that probably rings true for, for later tranches of PISA, because if, if there is a uh, an overwhelming support for the reform, which currently I think there is, um, you know, the, 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 the real weight of the profession is behind curriculum for Wales, I don't see things changing anytime soon. And I think teachers, I think, politicians, I think most people recognise that because this is such a fundamental change right across all facets of our system, not least, let's not forget, HEs, ITE, FE, there are changes right across the board. I think, uh, I think we, will, um, we will avoid the instability that might have come previously from PISA. I think we can ride it out. Uh, and I would like to think you know, but but again, this is this is the million dollar question, isn't it? It might be a decade or so before we start seeing real material upturns in our PISA performance. Now, some people might turn around and say, "Is that good enough? Is that acceptable?" Now, clearly, clearly, it's not. You know, and governments had twenty odd years at this since devolution already. So there are there would be, I think, fairly legitimate questions to be asked of uh, our ruling administration in terms of education policy and, and implementation. But on this occasion. I think we can we can we can ride it out. And and more importantly, I think the system now is maturing to a point where PISA isn't the be all and end all. There are lots of different uh, ways of uh, benchmarking performance, checking uh, in as to where we are. Um, and and look, we, we are, I think, improving in certain areas. Um, Estin will tell you us pre-pandemic that we were, I think, improving uh, in certain areas, although secondary uh, remained a significant concern across the piece. But other things, uh, A-level GCSE outcomes had improved uh, towards the end, uh, towards the beginning, I should say, of, of the pandemic. There were signs that the system was moving in the right right direction. Our last PISA scores, as you say, were, were encouraging. Um, so I think we can, uh, yeah, long-winded answer to a very straightforward question. I think we can ride it out, but there might be a little bit more pain along the way. Time will tell. Thank you, Gareth. Okay, so we ask all of our guests to make a a small contribution to our two short slots, um, and we're extending the same uh, to you. You can take your pick. Would you like to tell us something interesting or something to try first? (laughs) Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a particularly interesting person given my um, my sort of spare time is, is. Uh, head down in education books and listening to Roxy music. That's maybe one thing, Emma, and and, and Tom did say that I could say something a little bit daft. Um, I recently bought uh, Brian Ferry's new book, Lyrics, which is a long read on uh, all old Roxy music uh, songs that he'd written over the course of his 40, 50 odd year career. And they're back on tour in a few months. So if anybody is uh, of my sort of musical persuasion and fancies listening to uh, to Roxy, get on down and see him before it's too late. Is that is that my interesting point? Is that enough? I would say that as we all stagger <laughs> towards a very well-earned summer break, a non-educational something interesting absolutely hits the target. <laughs> I think you couldn't have done better there to steer us gently away from the day job. Thank you for that, Gareth. And the other slot is 
something to try, which is a strategy or an idea that might make uh, an education yeah. professional's life run better or, or, or in some way smoother? Yeah, well, well, this one, again, is, is very much aligned to the day job. I'm spending a lot of time at the moment working with um, some great schools across the country on professional inquiry, uh, close to practice research. And I, and I know, you know, this has been part of our scene now for a while. Uh, it's very much embedded in policy that teachers are research engaged and research active. Um, I would encourage teachers, uh, if they haven't already, to start playing around uh, with inquiry and start reading up a little bit on it. There are plenty of workshops knocking about. I know we do it. I'm pretty sure you guys do it as well. Um, different bits and pieces, you know, starter workshops, introductions to, if you see anything on Hub, if you see anything promoted by government or the consortia, have a little look. Uh, I would strongly recommend um, reflecting on your own practice. That's pretty much what it is. Reflecting on what you do, trying to solve problems um, and digging a little deeper into the things that have been bugging you for a while. It's it's really good practice. I do it. Colleagues do it. Um, teachers now increasingly are are doing it and with, with some really, really um, positive results. So it's not as if this is a wasted endeavour or just a tick box. Um, there is a lot to be gained through it and I would strongly recommend people uh, seek out any opportunities to engage in professional inquiry. Great suggestion. Thanks, Gareth. And of course, inquiry is another important sort of tool and vehicle to uh, sort of tackle the challenges curriculum for Wales. If, you, if you've if you become familiar with that process, then it might help mm. you when you're trying to make sense of, uh, of how to put that into practice. Absolutely. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, that is how you end a season, I would suggest. I think so. As <laughs> a cracker. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time, Gareth, and uh, have a, a, a well-deserved summer break when it arrives. Pleasure. Thank you both. It's been great. Lovely to speak to you. And you as well. And we are going to take a well-earned summer break. We will be back in September with a little mini episode over the summer, probably, just to keep you vaguely interested. But that is us done for a fourth year of podcasting. Uh, finished it off in style. Thank you very much to everybody who's been on the podcast this year. And we'll be back with you. Uh, normal service resumed in September. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Gareth Evans, Director of Education Policy at Rathrova, the University of Wales Trinity St David Carmarthen. You can find his blog at welsheducationmatters.wordpress.com. Thanks to Gareth for taking part and thanks to everyone who's appeared on the podcast this year. Dr Judith Neen, Julia Rooney, Dr Louise Allen Walker, Dr Julia Jenkins, Richard West, Seanad David, Steph Robinson, Liz John, Dr Viv John, Rian Crooks-Williams, Sally Bethel, Sean Wickersham, Lucy Crean, Professor Emma Jane Milton, Dr Alex Morgan, Dr Anna Bryant, Jeremy Miles, Julie Keyes and Beth and Jeffers. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod. We'll be back on September the 9th with Series 5. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs>